Welcome to the Culinary School Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Schroeder. Culinary School is a podcast that brings food service professionals together to teach, inspire, and challenge one another to continue to push the boundaries of our food service industry. Each week, we bring you a guest from the food service world to share their story and insights with you. Now, without further ado, join me as class is now in session. Welcome to the Culinary School Podcast. Today, I am joined by Chef Andres Dangon, who is uh, a world-known chef. Chef, thanks for being here today. Hey, man. Thanks for inviting me. It's great here being uh, here with you. I'm excited. Um, so let's start off. Can you just give a uh, Wikipedia page summary um, of yourself for those who may not know you? A summary, huh? All right. So I am from Colombia, South America. Um, I started working in the restaurants when I was 14, my parents' restaurants. Um, and, um, yeah, so I've been, I guess I've been working for 17 years or so in the restaurant industry and I've worked in Colombia, in Spain, Chicago, LA. Uh, and I've done it, I, I, I've tried to do it all in the, in the culinary, um, industry of, uh, I've worked with, uh, you know, Colombian cuisine, Spanish, fine dining, mm-hmm. rustic, uh, street food. I mean, I've tried to master it all, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what's your family's restaurant that you oh, started in? It was, it was in Bogota, the capital of mm-hmm. Colombia, and it was called Tony's Cafe. It was okay. uh, named after my dad's middle name, which is Antonio. Tony for, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but it was like a Colombian, French sort of restaurant. Um, and it lasted for like six years. My mom ran it. Uh, it was like a business thing. And then my mom got a little bit older and started getting tired. So we just got rid of it, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, but I, I did, I did go to my, I, that's where I started actually. I was mm-hmm. doing like little, little desserts and helping out at the restaurant. So that's where like, I guess my interest started like peaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Family has a restaurant, because um, typically I'm always curious as to see what influences you have or someone has is getting into the industry. So, you know, you started working in the restaurant at 14, but before that, uh, I mean, were you involved in the kitchen at home with your parents cooking or uh, kind of how did that start that kind of spark your interest? Yeah, of course. Um, I, one of my first memories is helping my mom like brush like an egg wash or something and and something that she was baking. I I don't know how old I was. I was probably like three or four years old. It was one of my uh, first memories of my life. And I just remember helping my mom in the kitchen, like making meals for my family, for my dad, my siblings. Um... So I've always been very interested because of that, because I was just in the kitchen at a very early age, and uh, uh, <laughs> sadly, I feel like an idiot, uh, an asshole for saying this, but my mom wasn't all that great of a cook. Mm-hmm. So when I grew older, and I started realizing, hey, this is not that great, <laughs> um, and you know, after going to restaurants and out to dinner, it's like, mm, the food at home is not what it could be. So I, I, I started like on the weekends taking over and like cooking for myself and my, my, my parents and my mm-hmm. brothers uh, and just practicing and, and, and watching cooking shows and stuff like that. So 
uh, that's how I, I guess I got started with a little bit of nostalgia from when I, was a, when I was a baby and then by just not being a great fan of my mom's cooking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so you mentioned watching cooking shows. Was there a show in particular that you liked or a chef that you kind of knew of that you idolized that you know you really looked up to and helped kind of guide you down to this path? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I want to say the obvious. I want to say, I want to say right now, I want to say Anthony Bourdain, but that wasn't the case for me because I was in South America. So in South America, we, we had our own, we have our own version of, of the Food Network, which is okay. called uh, Canal Gourmet, Gourmet Channel. And it's basically the same thing, just Latin American version with uh, their headquarters, I think, they're in Argentina. So they had two chefs, one of them was Venezuelan and then the other one was um, Spanish, Borja Olasquez and Sumito Esteves. Those were my two favorite chefs from their network. Sumito is this Venezuelan guy, he's like a, he, his past life was like a physician or something like that and he just knows everything about the chemistry and the, 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 the physical and chemical reactions of food. So he had a great approach to food, which was, you know, explaining why something is happening mm -hmm. versus to you do this because that's what you do. So that was always fascinating to me. I've always wanted to know why, why this happens. Why does it need to happen this way? What happens if I do it a, a different way? Um, and then Borja, the Spanish guy, he just, his recipes and, and, and just his passion and his charisma when he was cooking was just like enchanting. It was like, this guy's so cool. This guy's enamored with what he's doing right now. So that was absolutely contagious. Um, so those were two, my two role models, that which I, 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 I was very fortunate to, to be able to meet and, and try their food and cook and just talk with them. It was great. And then of course I, I grew older and we started getting like USA channels and whatever. And of course I discovered Anthony Bourdain. I was like, holy shit. What is this? Who is this guy? And I got his, his book, Sketching Confidentials, a, a masterpiece. And I mm -hmm. think that book is going to be, you know, forever and ever right. around. Um, so uh, then, yeah, I guess all my focus turned into Anthony Bourdain and what he was showing us and all the things that he was telling us and, and how real it ended up being, you know. Um, of course, I want to say thanks to him and all the things that he pointed out, a lot of things in the industry started changing. Um, so, I mean, he has not only, of course, influenced me and a trillion other chefs, mm -hmm. but the industry in, in, right. in itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah and, and like we were talking before, it's not even just the chefs too. As someone like me who's in the, the equipment side of the business, who sells the equipment, no culinary skills in general, but... That's where I fell in love with uh, the industry, um, Kitchen Confidentials. I mean, amazing book and yeah. just, I mean, fell yeah. in love with it. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, not only what he was saying, but the way he says things. It, it's so funny and so real, so raw. Um, yeah, absolutely. And then just his show just rounded up the whole educational package from him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you started working in the family restaurant at 14, kind of where did your, um, you know, what, what did those next few years look like for you? Kind of how did that guide you? Where did that take you? Um, yeah. You know, what was school um, in there at all or strictly, you know, cooking as you started to get older? 
Well, school, I have to go back to when I was 14. I graduated high school when I was 14. That's not because I'm a genius. I think I am a genius, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it happened because I was the worst student on earth. I cannot learn a thing. Mm-hmm. I am not interested at all in what <laughs> someone else has to say. <laughs> um, so I was a terrible student and um, I was, I was, me and my family we were very fortunate. So we were going to a private school. My dad was, my family, my mom and dad, they were paying for our private education. It was very expensive, but I was just terrible, terrible grades, terrible student. And so my dad decided one day to say like, hey, are you like gonna get real about this? Because this is costing us a lot of money. And I ended up saying, you know what? No, I don't wanna keep doing this. And I convinced my parents to let me drop out and to finish high school on my own. So I found this group of teachers, like from each um, subject, math, biology, whatever. Uh, and I saw them uh, like four days out of the week on like from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. And they would like give me like hardcore rundown of everything. And they would like test me. And like ninth month later, all of them agreed more or less that I was I was ready to present to you know do the SATs or whatever those things are called here. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm very uninformed about the educational system here, but um, so I did it. I went to the uh, to the educational department of Columbia thing, and I said, hey, I want to present myself as a self-taught you know high school whatever. And then they gave me the exam, and I passed. And I'm free. I yeah. graduated from this nightmare uh, at 14. So that's when I started working in my, in my parents' restaurant. And I, um, my, I, I was actually continued talking about education. I was waiting for my best friend to graduate from high school so that we can both move to Barcelona and go to music school. So although I was working at my parents' restaurant and, and, and I loved cooking, it was not like set in my brain that that was a profession for me. Mm-hmm. I just loved doing it. And uh, so four years later, after working at my parents' restaurants and other really cool restaurants in, in Bogota, um, I went to Spain with my best friend, Barcelona. We went to music school. Again, terrible student. Um, and I, th- that's where I started realizing, hey, maybe food is my thing. Because I kept thinking about this new restaurant just opened, this new tapas place, like uh, Ferran Adia, he has this thing going on, I really wanna go there. Like I just started realizing that I'm 99% of the day thinking about food and cooking and recipes and chefs. So it became very obvious to me that that was probably what I should, what I should focus on. Um, should I extend more on this educational part? <laughs> no, well I wanna, so you go to Barcelona to, um, Focus on music. I mean, what? I mean, what? Yeah. What? I mean, <laughs> I mean, what was your idea there? What did you want to do at the at that time? Right. So part of my earlier musical tr- training when I was a kid uh, was voice. I wanted to be a singer. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a rock star. I, you know, I just wanted to sing like Chris Cornell and you know, I, uh, or Richie Cotton, which is another one of my favorite singers. Uh, but I just didn't have the voice for it. And being in culinary, I'm sorry, in music school, everyone kept saying like, you have a great jazz voice. You have a great like classic voice, like Frank Sinatra. Like, yeah, that's cool and sexy and all, but I, I don't, it's not, not what you want to do. Um, and I just didn't have the voice. And I was also very, very shy. Like I had to th- sing twice in front of like uh, gr- 
like 50 or 100 people and I just lost it. I couldn't do it. I forgot the melody uh, one time. I forgot the lyrics the other time. I was just a mess. So I decided to surrender and, <laughs> and just stick to, uh, to my culinary thing. But yeah, my best friend actually went on to become a mega star in the music industry in South America. He's huge there. Um, so well, at least I get to say I have a rock star friend. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so did you stay when, you know, you were starting to realize that culinary was maybe your thing? Did you stay in Barcelona and work there or did you go home to Colombia? Yeah. Or did it lead you somewhere else? No. See, the, the most absurd thing that wasn't so absurd at the end was that I moved back home. I moved back home to pursue culinary when Spain was exploding as like probably the world's capital of food because of Ferran Adria and El Bulli and uh, the Roca brothers uh, with El Celer de Can Roca. So these were all like tremendous restaurants and, and I'm like right next to France and I'm like in a center of like gastronomy. Mm -hmm. And for some reason I said, no, I, I should go back home. <laughs> and I did. And when I landed, I was like, oh shit, this makes no sense. I should have stayed over there and trying to work with the best in the world right now but actually ended up being great I think I, I don't regret anything um, I started working there at like the Colombia's top restaurants one of them was a, a phenomenal Italian restaurant uh, crazy things happened there I, I learned so, so much and they the owners of that restaurant were owners of also of other restaurants like a Mediterranean, Mediterranean restaurant a Mexican restaurant they just had a little empire of restaurants so I asked the owner to uh, move me around so I can learn as much as I could. And he loved that idea. So, so I guess I was just well-trained in a bunch of different world cuisines. Uh, and um, what, what happened after that? I don't, I forgot. I don't know <laughs> what happened. <laughs> I was, I was, uh, oh, oh yeah. I was, uh, so I moved to Colombia when I was 19 mm -hmm. and I started working in the restaurants. When I was around 20, 21, I started working as a bar manager at this hot bar in Colombia, and I, I got a taste for, for business, for money. Mm -hmm. uh, I was the one standing in the door getting the, cover, the covers, and uh, that changed a little bit my, my ambition, no, mm -hmm. noticing that as a cook I was making nothing. And then, you know, as a bar, bar manager I was making more, so I don't know, that my, my financial hunger started, you know, growing. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I'm a little bit, yeah, I forgot. Mm -hmm. so then how did that, then how did you end up here in the States? I mean, you've worked for some incredible restaurants here. Yeah. Um, you know, we were talking before back in Chicago, um, where we had both lived yeah. millennium among some others, and, you know, how did that kind of transcend from Columbia yeah. to here? Uh, I, I'll have to go back to my mom for this one because my mom did the most painful thing <laughs> to me, uh, but it was also the greatest act of love, I think, you know, in a, in a weird, fucked up way, the biggest show of love that a mother can have with his son. I was 21, 22, was making ton of money working in the bars and make just cash. And I was, I was just having the time of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, I was still living with my parents in, in Colombia and a lot of Latin American cultures, you live with your parents basically till you like 
get a job, move out, or get married, but you stay with them for a, until you know until you get a little. Man, my parents kicked me out. Yeah. <laughs> Eighteen by. I know, I know, I know. That's that's like the common thing here, and it's pretty cool. But uh, in Colombia, that's not. You stay with them until you're about to get married or something like that. Uh, so I was 21, 22, and I was just partying every single night with my friends at the bar, spending money like crazy. And both my parents were like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, what do you think this is? Uh, and uh, so I, I was just rebellious. I guess my, I, I just never matured, I guess, from my, my teen aging. Um, and then my mom had enough of me and she kicked me out. She said, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna leave right now. And when I come home later tonight, you're, you, you can't be here. You need to leave our home. I was like, fuck. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's pretty intense. <laughs> Are you serious? Um, so I did. I left uh, and, I, and, I, and I, I stayed at a, play, at a friend's place for like two weeks. One of my brothers was living in Chicago at the time and like I was so sad. I was desperate. I was absolutely lost. I called him like, hey, mom kicked me out. I have like 400 bucks. I have nothing. I'm like screwed. Uh, and I wasn't asking him for anything. I was just calling my brother to vent, to, right. to cry with right. him on the phone or whatever. And he says, well, you know what? Like, it seems like you're pretty lost. Like, you don't know what's happening in your life right now. Why don't you just come over, visit me for a few months, and then maybe you'll clear your head. Maybe it'll be good for you to step away from, from our, our parents and Colombian, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to go there for, uh, for the duration of my tourist visa, which was six months. Uh, so I stayed with my brother for six months. Um, and then I ended up uh, enrolling in culinary school um, to extend my visa to a student visa. Mm -hmm. And I ended up staying for like a year and a half with him. And then I found my own place. And well, I was in Chicago after graduating culinary school, which, by the way, I need to make a parenthesis here. I hate culinary school. I think it's the <laughs> biggest scam. And uh, I, I enrolled in culinary school because I just needed to extend my visa. Okay. So this is a little tip okay. over here for okay. immigration. I know we're going to get into the culinary school <laughs> yeah. part later. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. So I did that. And after culinary school, I, I had to do my, uh, what's that called? My internship. Mm -hmm. So I was... I was to keep myself busy, um, I was doing some culinary writing. I was interviewing some chefs and writing articles and sending them back to Colombia for publishing in some magazines and some newspapers. And so I started getting uh, getting to know phenomenal chefs, Grant Aikets from Alinea, Laurent Gross from L2O. Uh, I interviewed Ted Allen at the time from Queer Eye from the Straight Guy. Or uh, Yeah, was it at the time? I think so. Just huge names, Mario Batali. Um, so when I interviewed Laurent Gras, I, w I was amazed by his restaurant, his food and everything. It was incredible. So I asked him, can I do my internship here? And he accepted me. I was there for like, I think it was three months, no pay, really long days. I think one day, uh, one day off a week or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that was the, the greatest three months of my culinary life. And after that, I, I went to Alinea. I knocked in the back of, what was the address? 1732 North Halstead. 
something like that. Mm-hmm. I forgot the address. And um, I talked to uh, Chef Dave Barron, who was the chef that we seen at Alinea at that time. Um, and uh, I was actually bugging them because I wanted to interview Grant Aikets. And he's like, dude, he's not here. Like, stop, you know. Because I was going there once a week, like, trying to look for him. Mm-hmm. And he's like, dude, just, he's not here. Come on. Um, and on the last time, I was, like, taking my bike with my little backpack, uh, back, like, driving away from it, riding away from it. And I said, you know what? I'm going to ask this guy. So I turned around. He knocked on the door again. He comes out, like, what the fuck? <laughs> and, and I gave him my resume. And I say, Do you, can I work here? Can I cook here? Would you take me for a week? I'll work for free. And he was kind of like, like this guy has to be, he has to be a lunatic. So he looked at my resume. My resume at the time was a, was actually like 10 years of great culinary experience, but in Colombia with the restaurants that mean nothing to him, chefs that he won't mm-hmm. you know recognize. And he ended up saying, you know what? Yeah, come here. I'll, I'll see you tomorrow at 11 a.m. Great, awesome, thank you so much. And that's how I started in Alinea. And I was there for like, it was quick. It was also like a, like a it was a stage. It was like a uh, like three or four week stage in Alinea. Mm-hmm. That was absolutely life changing. Mm-hmm. Why do you say that? Why was it life changing for you? Because, so at this point, I've already been in the industry for around 10 years. And I can prep like a monster. I can chop onions at the speed of light. Uh, I'm pretty solid in my culinary skills and my knife skills. But I go to Alinea and the first task that they give me is to dice three red onions with a perfect, like perfect cube. They give me precise dimensions. It took me three hours to do this. So I would grab a red onion and I would dice it, trying to be careful, and I would take it back to the chef and, and they would like examine it with tweezers and like almost little cube by cube. It's like, nope, this is, see, this is, this big, this one's a little bit bigger, can't, it has to be consistent, it has to be all of them perfect, I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm not a machine, mm-hmm. I don't know what to do here, so it took me like three hours to finally, like, get it, and that's when I understood that there is, like, perfection, <laughs> mm-hmm. and these guys are, like, on it, you know, uh, everything that they, that they did, how they did it, it was perfect, it was so accurate, so precise, so organized that that, that one, one month with them just showed me how just, just to get things done perfectly, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, I don't think they would say that their food is perfect because I think perfection is kind of like impossible. But they, I don't know, I just, I just learned to like work and mm-hmm. I just learned that my, my standards were incredibly low. And that there are insane ways to do to make things mm-hmm. just beautiful and perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at that time, was it what Eleni is today with all the illusions and just kind of performance that comes with the meal? Were they yeah. doing that then, or is that something that they were starting to do? Yeah. So, well, I think Eleni has always been like a theater, mm-hmm. like a culinary theater. Uh, Nick Cocon is the, the owner, the co-owner, said it once perfect, like, you don't come here to eat, you're here, you're here to, like, get entertained, mm-hmm. sort of. Uh, everything is, is, is breathtaking. Everything is so thought out. I think it has gotten a little bit more 
uh, how, how to say it, what is the word here? Like more uh, entertaining, more uh, oohs and ahs mm-hmm. versus like perfection on the food. Like now you have like the floating balloons right. that Mike Bagal uh, created over there. And uh, so everything that they do, it seems to be more, it, they seem to be evolving towards a more like a showmanship, like a entertaining thing. Um, when I was there, it was, it was still very much like that. You, the entryway to Alenia is like in a way that it resembles the, um, the little corridor in, in Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. And it does feel like you're <laughs> Alice in Wonderland. It, everything is so crazy over there. Um, the way that they serve things in, in, in dynamic plates that move around and you, and like, you sort of like build your next course, which was already sitting underneath what you were already eating and you didn't know it, but somehow that aroma from that dish was complementing the first one that you were mm-hmm. it, it's a it's a mind fuck mm-hmm. everything there is it's meant to like melt your brain right and it, i think when i was there um when i started there the michelin guide had not yet started publishing in chicago i left and like the following month they started uh so i guess i was in the moment, in the in the stage where where the Michelin guy was inspecting all the mm-hmm. restaurants in the, in there, in that period of time, so I want to say that at least I made some diced onions for one, a Michelin inspector mm-hmm. <laughs> while I was there, so that makes me feel a little, a little bit proud. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, so is there looking at it now? Is Alinea, or do you have a Thinking, like looking back, a favorite restaurant. I know you said that kind of helped change your perspective on kind of just the culinary industry. Um, but is there a restaurant in particular that you worked in that was um, that you look back and was your favorite, or a chef yeah. that was your favorite to work for? Of course, I don't have to think about it. Uh, Laurent Gras at L2O. Um, the, the, uh, that guy is a master of flavor. Um, and I blame him for a lot of the things that I think, I don't want to say that I master, but a lot of the things that people notice about my food, I think I blame it on him mm-hmm. <laughs> or I'm thankful that, that it's because of him. His sauces are works of art. Everything is perfectly seasoned. And that guy just, his palate just detects balance uh, to a crazy degree. And I think that's where I refined that, my, my seasoning, my, my way of composing a sauce, the basis, uh, how to build flavor on top of flavor on top of flavor mm-hmm. to something that makes sense. Um, it, to me, that was more of a, of a true culinary education, being there. And I, I did, I, I, I was so fortunate because he gave me the position of prep cook. So it was me and another chef, and Laurent Gras, early in the morning, prepping. It was the three of us. So how lucky am I to be one of three pe- person, people in the kitchen, mm-hmm. learning directly from the master who's like two feet away from me? That was unbelievable. So like I learned how to like break down an octopus to like make uh, sourdough starters because they, had, they made their own bread in there. Uh, to, I don't know, to cook potatoes. Like, you think you can make a potato? You think you can just cut a potato mm-hmm. in quarters and put it in the oven and 45 minutes later it's nice and crispy? No, you have no fucking clue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> 
this guy, I don't know, everything that, that he does and the way that they do it, it it's just unbelievable. It's mesmerizing. It, it's like you think you know what a French fry texture is. No, you don't. This guy knows, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so I was, just, I was just incredibly lucky to, to, to be able to witness how he does it, how he makes it, and, and just to learn from him. And having directly, directly there asking that I can ask questions like, hey, chef, why are we doing this like this? You know, mm-hmm. what happens if I if I if I do it this way instead of this way? So just again, just having him there answering my very annoying constant questions, mm-hmm. it was great. And he was an angel, and I, that um, guy changed my my career. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how are you able to, um, is use some of those skills today at the cut? Or I guess maybe real quick before we talk about that. Yeah. Um, what is the cut for anyone who hasn't been there? Yeah. So actually, I was just thinking about that. My introduction was very stupid. I just said my name and that I've been 17 years in the industry, but I didn't say anything about my restaurants. <laughs> well, you know, we just jumped right into it. So, yeah, yeah, so we can so. do that now. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, yeah. So the cut, the cut is a... The full name of the cut is the Cut Handcrafted Burgers. And uh, four years ago, I was hired by this gentleman called Steve Kim, which is not my business partner. And he hired me to develop the recipes for a food truck that was gonna make gourmet burgers. And uh, he had a very specific idea of what he wanted. Uh, he just wanted, he wanted like, from absolute scratch burgers. He was even thinking about how can we bake our own bread. I, I don't know if in the inside the truck, but you know, he was pretty ambitious. Mm-hmm. I shut a lot of his ideas down <laughs> because they were impossible. <laughs> but um, he, he just wanted a great burger experience. And um, so I started working with him uh, on what on, on, on what he had what we had discussed and uh, the type of burgers that he were looking for and, and we made a lot of tests like um, different blends of beef brisket chuck uh, sirloin you know short rib whatever and we came up with with a blend that we were both really happy with of course at, back then at the end of the day it was his his call whatever he preferred it was mm-hmm. what was going on the menu and again this was a truck so I developed three burgers three or four burgers I can't remember now. Uh, a chicken sandwich, fries, and and fried green beans, and a few different sauces that have become very popular, like the cot sauce, our signature sauce, our, our from scratch ranch is delicious, and um, the Three Thousand Island, which we call it Three Thousand Island because it's like a Thousand Island dressing, but just like much better, mm-hmm. <laughs> in my opinion. Um, so that was it. It was a very simple operation from the truck. And um, so I helped him launch the truck and I stayed with him for like a month as a, as, as a consultant, just making sure that everything was mm-hmm. being done properly and training the cooks and everything. And uh, that's it. That's where it ended. Uh, for the next two years, I would go to the truck and just eat for free <laughs> <laughs> and check up on things and see if they needed anything else. Um, and then one day he calls me and says, Hey, I think, uh, I think I want to make this into a restaurant. And do you want to, do you want to come in and help? And I want to offer you a partnership, come in as a partner, like become a, an owner of the cut. And 
fuck yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how it started. And we opened the restaurant, um, what was it, 10 months ago? It's almost, almost a year. Um, and we, of course, expanded the menu from four burgers. Now we have, I think it's eight or 10, uh, eight or nine. Uh, we have a few different sandwiches, small plates, different sides, um, salads, two great desserts. So it became a, a, a larger operation with a brick and mortar, um, but still very simple, very straightforward with mm-hmm. just crazy, weird burgers, I want to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, were there any um, issues moving that food truck concept into a brick and mortar location? I mean, you have a ton of kitchen experience doing that, but now being on the business side of it, um, you know, and I don't know your partner's experience, but were there any issues or challenges with that from food truck to the brick and mortar location? Oh yeah. Uh, well, I know from the transition from the food truck to the restaurant, regular problems, you know, the contractor is late. He's not, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'll tell you that that was my first food and food truck experience consulting for that mm-hmm. for the for the truck and i it it was crazy because you don't think about what happens when you have a mobile kitchen everything is different the fryers are different they have a lid mm-hmm. and all the shelves need to have like a little rail on top in, in front of them because so you know because the truck is moving so mm-hmm. you don't want hot oil spilling around and so and you have a limited limited amount of water that you can use in your sink and you also have a limited amount of space where the dirty water gets stored in so there's a lot of things that you don't think about naturally i mm-hmm. think you know as a chef coming from a from you know regular kitchens you don't realize oh shit yeah we don't have that much water we don't have that mm-hmm. much waste we what are, how do we do this? So that was, especially because we were making, um, we were grinding our own meat inside the truck and making our fries from scratch. And uh, the fries were not easy. They were not mm-hmm. just cut cut and fry. We I developed a recipe that I think made the fries really, really good, but it was just so complicated. We had to cut the fries, um, put them in a brine of vinegar and salt and some other stuff overnight, then blanch them, then refrigerate mm-hmm. them again, and then fry them. It was a long process, but it was worth it. It was a great fry, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Uh, so it was just, we went through a lot of headaches just to put out really good food out of the truck. The transition to the restaurant, it was just like a dream come true. It was like, shit, yeah, now we can, now we can make more of these fries without the headache of the storage. Now we can use the water, now we can, that was that was just it was coming from the from a truck it was easy mm-hmm. it was there's no issues here this is what i've done i know how to run a kitchen um it, it was it was just easy mm-hmm. at least from uh in operations in the kitchen standpoint is it for someone who maybe is wanting to look to move to food truck to brick and mortar is it easier because then you don't have some of those things i mean certainly space <clears throat> you'll most likely probably get some more space depending on location, but then you don't have to have a certain amount of water, uh, dirty water, waste, things like that. Yeah. I'll tell you two things. Well, I'll tell you our real example of of why we have a food truck. It's because, at least in LA, if you don't have like a proven record of like successful business, 
a tenant is not going to lease you a space. It, they won't. Really? Yeah. Um, even if, even presenting my resume, like, look, I've been working at great restaurants. Like, you know, I, I have experience. I've been doing this for a while. They're like, yeah, but have you ever run a business? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and they, they just wouldn't in my, my business, my business partner, Steve, he was looking for a restaurant space for like two or three years before he decided to do the food truck. Mm-hmm. He started the food truck because he gave up on the restaurant space because nobody mm-hmm. would give him a space. So he said, he said like, that's just, I, this is impossible. I'm just going to start with a food truck. And then after the food truck became popular and started winning some recognition and awards, then landlords mm-hmm. started um, calling, offering spaces. Mm-hmm. So now that we have a space and we have a great landlord, Irvine Company, which mm-hmm. owns Irvine. Now we're like, <laughs> all right, we opened the doors to this really, you know, mm-hmm. impressive so I guess we're set and I would not move from a restaurant to a food truck unless I'm the one not running it yeah. because it's, <laughs> it's, it's a nightmare. It's hot. It's humid. It's very tight in space. It's, it's just not very comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would rather stay at a brick and mortar. Yeah. What, um, I mean, for someone who wanted to make that move from food truck to brick and mortar, um, you know, having that experience consulting there, you know, maybe what's something that um, that person should think about. Um, so I think, you know, whatever the reason they started that, that food truck, but now that guy I want to take this into a restaurant, you know, that may not always transition into the success that they're having in the food truck. Say that again. <laughs> so just, I mean, what's something that someone needs to be mindful of who has a successful food truck now um, who, you know, think it's a good idea to open the restaurant? Because that doesn't always necessarily carry over. You have a great food truck, you're killing it now, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean, yeah. you know, success in the restaurant because a lot changes. Yeah. Uh, well, I think any food truck owner or manager will tell you that the hardest part, depending on what operation you're, you're running, the hardest part will always be, where do I park this damn truck? Because you can't just park it on the street, like in front of a park, you need a permit. Uh, if you're not, you're gonna get a ticket, and so you gotta keep it busy. You gotta keep scheduling sp- stops for it, like a, maybe a, a private, uh, property where there's like an office building that's mm-hmm. hiring the truck for their employees or whatever. So that I think is the, 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 the most difficult management of the, the, of the food truck. Once you move into a brick and mortar, you don't have that issue anymore. You're not constant. You're not thinking on a daily basis. Where am I going to get more customers? Mm-hmm. Your, th- your thinking turns into how am I going to get customers in here? Mm-hmm. Somehow, it feels easier. Somehow, it feels like it's a more natural, easier thing to, to, to convince people to drive a few blocks or miles or whatever to come to your restaurant than to continuously looking for a, for a, for a space for the truck. I would, I don't know, I don't, if, I, if, I, if I don't know, I would always from now on, never, ever again do a food truck. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's easier. It feels easier. Well, I, I can't say this because, truthfully, because my, my partner, Steve, is the one that manages the restaurant runs on a daily basis. 
I just, once again, I go there for the free food. <laughs> um, but I, I, yeah, for sure, that is the easiest part. Like, just, you know, and you do that through social media. You don't, mm -hmm. with, with a truck, you have to, like, tell your social media followers, we're at this spot today. Right. So maybe that already knocks out, like, half of your followers because they're not in L.A. They're maybe mm -hmm. in Orange County or something like that. So it's just, that is, that's where it's at. And with, mm -hmm. with a restaurant, you just... You know, decide on a radius and, and target that radius aggressively, and, mm -hmm. and and hopefully everyone gets to know that that's the new hot spot, and you know, it turns out to be that way. Mm -hmm. It feels easier. Yeah. Yeah. Did, I mean, did the the cut food truck have those issues? I mean, it seems like it didn't because I mean, right away it seems that once it started, it it gained recognition so quickly with getting, you know best burger and getting nominated for other awards i mean yeah. you know it, it from my opinion looking in it seemed right away that it just was well known and you know started just winning awards it hasn't been around for that long yeah yeah no it it i mean it, at this point it has been around for like three or four years but i i i blame two two things for the success of the of the of the truck uh, first is that we were doing, we were very ambitious with what we were doing in the truck with the food. Again, we were making everything from scratch. So if you were to go in the truck now or three years ago, you wouldn't find a bottle of, of, you know, ranch that we bought at, at restaurant depot. You would find gallons of buttermilk and chives and spices and things and, and we're making our own ranch we're making our own sauces we're grinding our own beef inside the truck and making the patties there mm -hmm. the only thing that we were making was the buns we had this we have this incredible artisan baker in orange county um, make them for us daily so all of the food it was is it is very very fresh done daily from scratch and people I think people notice the difference. You know, you would go to a different truck and, and you can tell the generic bun, the generic, you know, toast, the generic mm -hmm. ranch dressing, right? Uh, but we're just making things very differently. Um, so that, that was the, that's the first thing that I think was the, the, the success, the, the quality and the freshness of the food. And second of all, my partner, Steve, he became a master of scheduling the truck that guy does that like mm -hmm. nobody's business and that is incredibly impressive i consider myself a good sales guy but that guy made miracles did mm -hmm. miracles still does it you know by just making sure that the truck was booked every single day for lunch and dinner that's something that in the industry is very rare mm -hmm. and people still call him saying like how do you do that like how do you get your truck booked lunch and dinner every single day mm -hmm. and the answer is you just fucking hustle yeah you just grab the phone and call yeah you i mean know? that's true because even now i'll look at some some other well-known food trucks in the la area and i'll look at their schedule and there's still times where you know they have open days that they're not sure where it's it's gonna yeah. be so having it booked you know at least for one meal Every single day yeah. is great, but having it lunch and dinner is extraordinary. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. 
Yeah, so he, Steve is great at that. Um, and the only days that we don't run the truck is because it's under maintenance or there was a problem with the truck or mm -hmm. a stop canceled, you know, uh, something. But it's it, but we're on it and it, that's just phenomenal work on his end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right, I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, so let's say that there's... Um, you know, a 14 year old version of yourself that is sitting here with us. Um, you know, when you started getting into cooking and they want to make a career out of it, what would be your advice? I was originally had noted down here to ask if you think culinary school is a good <laughs> idea, but I know now that you don't think it is, um, <laughs> I but um, I, I think we can get at that afterwards, but, yeah. um, you know, what, what would be your advice to, um, you know, your younger 14-year-old self, someone who wants to um, make a career out of this, you know, what would you recommend for them to start? Yeah, yeah. I was actually just talking to my little brother about this. I told him that if I if I could... Man, I'm not that old. I could still do it, but I guess I'm a little bit lazy and tired. <laughs> but I, I was telling my little brother that the one thing that I do regret is not learning more about business. I was so passionate about cooking and learning recipes and new techniques and methods and whatever that I forgot that this was a business in the end. And if I could, if I could, you know, go back to when I was 16 or whatever or 20 or whatever I would go to college for business school and uh, that would only be to complement my culinary career mm -hmm. um, I think I'm good at business I want to say that I'm smart about business decisions and that I the way that I think about numbers and blah blah, blah I, 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 I can do it but I think uh, I think go, having gone to business school or something like that would have been incredibly important I, I could probably like own an empire restaurant mm -hmm. by now and be like a billion more times successful so I, that's the, I think that's really the only regret that I have of what I didn't do, could have done. Mm -hmm. And I would tell 14-year-old Chef Dangon right now is, dude, you know, stop smoking weed and go to college school, uh, to mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> business school. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I wasn't smoking weed at 14, but you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what I would, that's what I would, yeah. That's my advice. For, for, because cooking and eating, it's a skill. Mm -hmm. um, yes, you have to be smart about it. And it's great for someone to show you how to grab a knife and how to like brunoise or julienne something. But that's something that you learn with practice. Mm -hmm. um, and I, all of my, my skills in the kitchen are 100% because of the experience that I had cooking in kitchens. Mm -hmm. My first job was doing the most simple tasks. When I went, started at this Italian, great Italian restaurant, I was doing, I was peeling potatoes for, to make gnocchi. Mm -hmm. So for like several months, I was just peeling potatoes. And I'm a master at peeling potatoes now. You know, I know how to peel potatoes. I know how to like make pizza dough. I know how to make everything from absolute scratch. And that's something that it's best to learn when you're in a kitchen that specializes in that. Mm -hmm. Culinary school is not gonna give you that in-depth training on something so I would go to uh, business school and in my free time or after I graduate submerge fully 
into the skill that I want to polish and start working at restaurants. Maybe mm-hmm. I can become the manager of that restaurant and oversee the financials of that restaurant mm-hmm. and then also spend time in the kitchen and like learn from the pastry chef or whatever. Uh, I think that would have been a, a smarter way to mm-hmm. go about it. Yeah. Do you think though maybe if you would have done that, you wouldn't necessarily have some of the skills that you have today? Because since you didn't do that, you spent a lot more time in the kitchen. And I ask because, you know, I'm curious, um, since I haven't spent a lot of time in the kitchen, you know, you learn a lot on it. And, you know, to me, it seems that people want to get in the kitchen to get that experience, have that resume. But if you don't have all of those things on, it may be harder to kind of, I guess, get forward in your career from that aspect. Or do you think it still, it won't, I mean, today at least, hurt to do that and have that business background? Um, I think that if you're passionate enough and you truly are interested in something, Mm -hmm. you will learn it and you will learn it very quick. And I was cooking since I was not even a teenager, you know? Mm -hmm. I wasn't cooking professionally, but I was cooking daily different things I was like taking notes I was buying great cookbooks watching the cook the cooking shows from these two guys that I love and I would just practice and practice and practice and Mm -hmm. practice and that is the education that you need you know and I started noticing "Hmm, I'm holding the knife a little bit weird and it's hurting my hand after all this chopping so I went back to the TV and started looking how these two chefs that I that I liked how how they were holding the knife so I was like I noticed like oh they have their thumb here they have the whatever and I started paying attention to that. So in my case, I don't want to brag, but in my case, I think that I started learning professionally, how to do things professionally at a very early, a very, very early age. So I think in my case, it would have been uh, complemented perfectly. And, and right now, and if, if, you, if you have zero experience and you're 30 or 40 years old, and you want to become a chef over, you know, all of a sudden, you don't have to have a, re- I, I don't, I, I would be very disappointed with any chef that asks you for a culinary degree and, 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 you know, yes, you do want to know that the cook person has experience, but mm-hmm. what, but doesn't matter because that chef is going to run you over the kitchen and teach you how to things their way. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, almost rather have someone that doesn't know how to peel a potato so I can show them the way that I like it Mm -hmm. versus them peel the potato the way that they do it, which might not be my favorite way. Right. And when we opened the cut, we hired a handful of people that had zero cooking experience. They just like making omelets at home. Mm -hmm. And today those are the two best cooks that we have. They're machines. They do things exactly how we want them to make them. Mm And, and it's, it, 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 I don't know, I, I, I have a preference for people that have, that right. don't have that much experience. Right. That and they're just probably more coachable. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You can just mold them the way that you want them. So I rather have unexperienced, inexperienced people. I want to ask now about the culinary school part of it, um, you know, and, and looking at it today, um, earlier you mentioned that you don't think culinary school is worth it, but you had to do it for your specific reason to to stay here. So that's, you know, 
understandable, but I wanted to hear your thoughts on culinary school today and kind of just your your general idea of it, if you know, why you don't agree with it. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll say it bluntly. I think culinary school is a scam. I think it's a waste of money and most importantly, a waste of, uh, of, 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 the, of time. The, the things that you learn in culinary school are so basic that I think it's just better if you pick your favorite restaurant and bug the chef every day to give you a job to wash dishes, to mop the floors. That is true culinary education. And you'll get to learn from the chef that you most admire at the moment. Uh, and what better education than that? How, like, if you go to this restaurant, you love their creme brulee because you think it's the best creme brulee in, in the world. Why go to culinary school and, to learn how to make a creme brulee while you can just spend your time at your favorite restaurant making the creme brulee that you love the most? That is more gratifying mm -hmm. and more educational because you might learn what makes that creme brulee the best creme brulee in the world, right? So you might go to a cookbook or you might see in a cooking show, creme, uh, creme brulee is a custard made with cream and eggs and sugar and vanilla, blah, blah. And then you sprinkle the thing, burn it, you got creme brulee, but maybe this guy over there sprinkles a little bit of, uh, uh, I don't know, cinnamon or grates a little bit of fresh orange zest on it and gives it that little something that you don't know what it is, but it just mm -hmm. makes it incredible. So it's stuff like that that I just think that just blows culinary school out of the water. It's, 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 I'll say why it's a scam. A scam is because when you go to culinary school and you're enrolling, they sell you a dream. The dream that they're selling is give us somewhere between 30 to a hundred thousand dollars. Give us somewhere between four months to two years of your time. And we will show you how to cook like a master chef. We will open the doors for you to become the next Anthony Bourdain, the next Tom Colicchio, the next Mario Batali, and you too could be on TV someday. But that's not it. That's not real. That is not realistic. Only a handful of people get to experience a career like that. Mm -hmm. And that is if you're exceptionally charismatic. It has nothing mm -hmm. to do almost with your culinary skills. It has to be always if you look good and sound good on TV. When you go to culinary school, they sell you the idea that you graduate as a chef and you are good to go. You can open your restaurant and be a rock star. Um, but the truth is that when you graduate culinary school is you're not even a prep cook. You're nothing. You just got into this massive debt, wasted two years of your life, and somehow you are going to have to pay that student loan by making 12, maybe $14 an hour. That's not realistic. It's, mm -hmm. it's impossible. It's going to take you a lifetime to do that. Um, unless you ask your parents for money, your grandma, you know, to give you a little bit more of that birthday check or something, uh, you're screwed. Um, so I think they take advantage of that dream. They take advantage of, of that, uh, the, 
in a way that Hollywood dream for chefs, which is like be the next judge in Iron uh, mm -hmm. Iron Chef or top uh, top chef chopped chopped. Uh, but that's just that just happens to a handful out of the whole massive population of chefs. Um, I I went to culinary school for four or five months because I needed to enroll and become a student in order to extend my legal uh, status in the country so I could stay here a little bit longer. Um, but I was already in the industry for 10 or 12 years. I'm sorry, uh, 10 or yeah, 10 or 12 years when I enrolled into culinary school. And at times I felt like I could be teaching what the instructors were showing us. And at times I found very inconsistent things in what they were teaching us. And that is because a very natural reason. One chef has a way to, um, roll out a dough. The other chef has a different way of how to peel a potato or how to like hold the torch when you're brulee-ing something. And you think that the way that that person is teaching you that that's, that's it, that's the best way, the classic French technique of doing it. But what you realize later when you graduate and you go and you start cooking at restaurants is that each chef has their preferred way of doing it. So instead of going and giving an institution $100,000 to learn one way to do something, go to a different restaurant every six months and learn different ways to do the same thing from the people that you consider to be the best chefs. Uh, for me, going back to the example of creme brulee, creme brulee is one of my favorite desserts and Still today, my favorite way of making creme brulee is the way that I saw it at one of my favorite restaurants in Colombia. And I asked to get a job there because I loved their food and I was dying to know how to make that, to make uh, how they made that creme brulee. And I've had creme brulees at three Michelin star restaurants. I've had creme brulees in France, in Paris, in Spain, everywhere. And that is still my favorite uh, creme brulee. And I'm so glad that I decided to just knock on that door and say, hey, can you hire me? I will clean the bathrooms, but just show me how to make that creme brulee. That humbles you, that shows you great work ethic, great strength, mm -hmm. and, and it just, it, it teaches you really valuable things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think people who go into culinary school, that they have that ambition or that drive? I mean, maybe some, Will, like you said, right, like getting that experience on your own, knocking on doors, bugging the shit out of a chef until he's forced to hire you just to yeah. say he did. And then if you suck, then he says, you know, go away. Yeah. But like you said, culinary school sells that dream. So, um, I mean, you said you're, you're walking out and you just think that, you know, you're going to, I don't know, you're going to make it, but once people realize that they don't, I don't know what's, I mean, from some of the people you know, kind of what's been that reaction after, you know, after they think they're getting a job, they have this all glamorized. Right, well, what happened is that they break down, they realize that the industry doesn't work like that. That the industry, I think, again, in my experience, in me personally, 
the industry rather hire someone that they can mold from zero to do things the way they prefer versus hiring this arrogant kid that thinks they're a chef because they just graduated culinary school. You don't want that attitude in the kitchen. You want someone humble and hungry mm-hmm. to learn what that chef has to teach you. And when, they, when, when culinary students graduate as chef and they, and they start like looking into like getting a job, they think they're gonna start as a, you know, a chef de partie or a, or a sous chef. No, they're not going to start like that. They're going to start by, you know, peeling shrimp, by, you know, washing certain machines and, and stuff like that. So they realize very roughly that it's not that glamorous. And a lot of them, after they get $100 in student loans, they just break down and cry and realize that the industry is not what they thought. And now they're screwed, but they can't do that. So they go on, quit the industry and get a job in real estate or whatever it is that they were doing before or that they sort of like was their plan B and <laughs> work even harder to pay off the student loan <laughs> from culinary school. So I don't know, like if you're, if you, this reinforces the thing of, cul- of the best culinary education being real kitchens is that if you pay, if you commit to $100,000 in student loan, you won't know what the industry is for another year or two, and you're stuck with that for the rest of your life. But if you go to a kitchen and ask the chef to let you work for free for a week or two weeks, you'll get a taste of what a real kitchen, what a real restaurant operation is, and you'll decide, I don't like this, or I do like this. If you don't like it, you quit. You quit your job that was paying you nothing, right. and then you're good. You saved yourself $100,000, two years of your life, and mm-hmm. you can continue on with plan B. Yeah, and you can say that you tried it. I'm sorry? And, and you said, you know, you could try it. Be like, yeah, I tried it, didn't work for me. And right, exactly, said, yeah, know, exactly, on. exactly. Instead of committing yourself to this massive mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, has that always been the case? Um, I mean, with some of your peers, I mean, is that kind of... Um, would a lot of others agree with you now um, or in, t- in today's age at culinary school? Do a lot of others have that same view as you? Or are there some people who will fight and say, like, culinary school is the, the way to go for someone who wants to get into the industry? I mean, I cannot be so absolute with this. I, most of my chef friends and, peop- and chefs that I talk to sort of agree with, with the way that I see things. And, and we all share the same mm-hmm. opinion in general terms. But of course, I'm sure there's a guy that had no idea what was he, was he getting into and went to culinary school and loved it and then graduated and shit, okay, I gotta peel potatoes, all right, I'll peel potatoes. And he just stuck to it and, and then loved it. I'm certain there's millions of cases like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess my general advice is always like, don't jump into it without really knowing what you're getting yourself into. Right. You know, well, some people like, well, call that adventurous, but it's a painful adventure. If you expensive. Too. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. All right. So let's, uh, move on from, from that. I mean, that was very mindful for me. That's something I've 
been dying to know too and wanted to, to ask you about that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, right now, um, you know, what's, what's next for you? Um, what, what are some of the things you're doing now? Some of the things that you want to do? Yeah. So I don't know if I told you this before or before the, the previous thing got erased is that I was trying four or five years ago, I made the decision to step away from the kitchens Mm -hmm. because I was sick of it. It was painful on your day. Every day you don't have a social life. Forget about your family. Forget about girlfriends. Forget about friends. Nothing. It's gone because you're a slave to the industry. So I did that for 12, 14 years and and I I decided I I had enough. I I don't want to, you know, continue this. This is too much. And so I started stepping away from the kitchens and, and trying to find a, a, a way to carve another position inside the industry without being on my feet for 14, 16 hours a day, every day. Um, and I was lucky to find a position with Lynx Grills. They hired me as their executive chef and their colon, uh, director of culinary development. What that means is that I get paid to make myself lunch every day. basically that means that i go there and i cook on our different equipment our grills our 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 nap our outdoor oven or whatever and i just test the equipment i make something to eat for me and my colleagues and people that are in the office and i just that that's my job that's my Mm -hmm. full-time job i just go there I cook, I eat, and I say, I like this, I don't like this, and I help out in different ways from a culinary standpoint with product development. But it, 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 it was just great to find an exit, mm-hmm. you know, and much better pay as well, mm-hmm. and a nine to five job, which is flexible and allows me to have a, uh, uh, you know, time with my girlfriend and, and my friends and my family, get paid better, and just have a better quality of life. Mm-hmm. So when I discovered that that was a possibility, I said, yeah, for sure. I'm not going back into a restaurant ever again unless, unless I'm, 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 a, I'm a customer. Mm-hmm. But then Steve called me. He wanted to do the thing with the truck. So I said, okay, this is consulting. I'll be inside of a truck for like a month. I can do this, you know. Then the partnership to open the brick and mortar. I said, yeah, all right. I'll be in that, rest- in that kitchen for like three or four months while it gets going. And I'll just come visit every once in a while after, after it's like rolling mm-hmm. and that should be pretty comfortable. And that's where I wanted to stop it. And that's what, that's where I'm at right now. Um, then because of an influence, an idea that one of my best friends put in my head, I started thinking about a different, a, a different concept that is able to marry Mexican street food with South American street food, especially Colombians, uh, Colombian street food. And I came up with this concept and I named them, named the, the concept after uh, what my friend suggested. And it's called, it, it, if it happens, which I hope it does, it, it, it will be called Tacos by Dres. So my name is Andres and he started one day calling me Dres, like, like a cool street name I guess mm-hmm. and I loved it I thought Dre's that's really funny um, it's like Dr. Dre but but not mm-hmm. my own my own Dr. Dre I guess sort of nickname and and I loved it and at that time I was I was developing the, the burgers for the cut 
and he told me, my, my, my friend told me, you should open a place that is Burgers by Drake's. And I thought, this is fucking genius, this is great. <laughs> I won't do it because I'm with the cut and I want to help the cut, I don't want to be competition. But then I came up with the concept of the, this Latin street food and uh, I, I realized, hey, maybe I can call this Tacos by Drake's. And I love the name um, and I really like the concept and how it's evolved from four tacos to four tacos and different sides, Colombian sides and some other different things like a, our own version of the Cuban sandwich, um, stuff like that. Um, so I'm very excited about how this concept is developing. Um, LA Food and Wine and Pebble Beach Food and Wine have invited me uh, almost every, for the second or third year in a row to be one of the presenting chefs there. And um, I took, last year I took uh, uh, Tacos by Drace to Pebble Beach Food and Wine and it was a great success. We had huge lines of people. They were saying, oh my God, this is like the best taco in place, the best taco I've ever had. So we had a great, a great uh, just reception uh, from people with, with the flavors of what basically is, or what I, what, what I served was a Colombian taco of sorts. Mm -hmm. We don't have tacos in Colombia, but I just put some Colombian flavors into this taco. Um, so I'm very excited. Um, I'm at the part right now where I'm developing the business plan and just like really, really drawing out exactly what I want this to be. And I have some some very interesting people interested in, in, in investing in, in, in the concept. Um, and this will definitely be a place that is, I don't know if franchisable, but definitely mm -hmm. a, a quick serving of tacos and mm -hmm. whatever and that you can find in several spots throughout the city or something mm -hmm. like that so i'm very excited about it and and i'm again I'm, I'm focusing this in a way where i don't have to be there every day all the time because i hate that mm -hmm. i want to build it for the first six months or whatever be there and just build that thing turn it into a monster and then train the right person to take over and come once a week twice a week and just supervise mm -hmm. the whole operation that's my dream. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm at right now, just trying to crack the code for that. Mm -hmm. so, is your, yeah. so is your vision kind of like a, a fast casual yeah. type of... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, I just want you to walk in, have two tacos, an arepa, and this weird Colombian drink that we're going to serve, and be so happy and be out of there in the next 10, 15 minutes. And mm -hmm. you're full, you're happy, didn't cost you that much, and you just had food that you didn't know existed because it's very strange mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> awesome yeah and here in la area somewhere yeah thinking about the yeah well i, I right now i live in, in in san pedro which is just right outside long beach between long beach and palo Verdes. but uh, me and my girlfriend we're moving to downtown la in uh two months so in San Pedro, there's a lot of potential for these for this place. There's a brewery there called Brewery West, and I'm talking right now with them. Maybe I'll I'll set up a kitchen there and and, and do like the test run of Tacos by Dre's inside of the brewery, like running their kitchen with Tacos by Dre's. So that's a that's an interesting possibility. I'm also looking into they're they're redoing Ports of Call, which is massive place. They every weekend it's packed with people, different restaurants. They're redoing the whole thing. There might be an opportunity to get a space there. But I'm open to, I don't know why my first location in my head for Tacos by Dreas was Manhattan Beach. It seemed like it would fit there. Now anymore, I don't know, Manhattan Beach is becoming a nightmare. 
but <laughs> but it's I don't know I don't know I'm open to wherever mm-hmm. maybe Orange County maybe Irvine maybe I open next to the cut I don't know yeah okay <laughs> you know and give us an idea time frame when you're hoping oh yeah this is the best answer for that somewhere between the summers of uh, 2018 and 2019 <laughs> there you go that is the laziest answer I can give you <laughs> <laughs> everything. Uh, Falls in place maybe a little sooner or... Yeah. You know. Yeah. I'll jump in whatever comes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. All right. Awesome. Um, so I want to end here with a few rapid fire questions sure. um, that I ask at the end of each episode. What are you most excited about for the food industry right now and moving forward? Oh, man. The wage. The wage situation. You know... My political preferences don't align with our current president, but there's one thing that I do like that he did, that he's been doing is is that he is changing the way that tips are uh, distributed inside of a restaurant. Now, I don't know, I haven't read the bill or read much about it, but it's back of the house will be able to participate in in the tipping pool of the restaurant which is insanely good mm-hmm. and uh, because where I come from, you don't have tips. You pay just everyone a wage, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or per hour or whatever, and people live with that and that's fine. Here, it, it relies more on the customer to support the server, but what about the guy that's burning himself and cutting himself, you know? Mm-hmm. So now the fact that the cook who's making minimum wage can will be able to participate in the get get some of the tips that is incredible mm-hmm. and I'm very excited about that mm-hmm. and I ju- I just think it's kickstarting this whole salary wage revolution in mm-hmm. the industry and that's very exciting because we people in the restaurant industry don't get compensated fairly mm-hmm. yeah which actually when you think about it blows my mind that you tip the server someone who is really you know bringing you out the food from someone in the kitchen who is preparing it. Right. If you haven't been, you know, in a kitchen, it is hot back there. You're sweating, you're burning yourself and they're doing the work and they're bringing out. So, right. Well, I do will, I will, I I agree with that 100%, but I will have to defend servers because imagine you having, you being a server and you're being, having a shitty day. You're in a bad mood. Something happened. You're Mm -hmm. having to go to work and having to smile for to strangers for eight hours and just be <laughs> that mm-hmm. fake with people. That's exhausting, you know? So their, their, their exact exhaustion is, mm-hmm. is different. Like dealing with people is very exhausting. Yeah. If the customer doesn't like the color of the straw, you gotta solve that somehow. I don't mm-hmm. know. And uh, constantly baby them and bring them what they want. It's exhausting. It's, it's mm-hmm. hard work, but I just think it's an unfair for only front of the house to get tipped. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of how I meant it is that it's, you yeah. know, not everyone there is getting, you know, is getting tipped on that. Just yeah. one aspect of it when there's behind the scenes, behind the kitchen doors that no one right. sees. Right. And now if this happens, now it will become more like of a team play mm-hmm. because now, because the cook doesn't get a tip, he doesn't care if the server gets a tip or not. So the cook can take as long as he wants just to fuck with the server mm-hmm. because he doesn't like the server. For something happened, he doesn't feel, is not a big fan of her or whatever. 
so he's going to delay that burger for a little bit and she's going to end up getting a bad tip because the food took forever. And somehow mm-hmm. that's her fault or his fault, the server. Uh, now, if this happens, it's a, it's a teamwork. Mm-hmm. The better that food comes out and the quicker the food comes out, the bigger the tip, the more, the, more money there is to distribute amongst everyone. So it, it's just forcing the industry to become one team. Mm-hmm. Right now it's very divided. So it's very, it's cool. If somebody came up to you today and said they wanted to open a restaurant, what is one piece of advice that you would tell them? I would, my first question is, have you done this before? Uh, if you haven't, why do you? And if you have run a restaurant before, I would offer my services. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess. All right, I'll take it. Yeah. Um, what's one restaurant right now that you really like that others may not know about? Ooh, man. There's a few. There's a few, but there's one, this one restaurant that uh, I've been living in Zempinjo for five years, and I just discovered this place because of uh, actually a culinary instructor, a friend of mine, uh, Chef Steph. I've been talking <laughs> terribly about <laughs> culinary instructors, but <laughs> there you go. You got something out of it. Though. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but she works with CCAV and they have a great, you know, they work with kids and it's different, but it's great. Uh, so she introduced me to this guy, uh, chef Dustin Trainee. He is the fourth generation uh, owner chef of this restaurant in San Pedro called uh, Trainee's. And the food is insane. And when you go to San Pedro, you don't see anything but like this poor, dirty taco place on the corner. And like, you know, you don't have that many great places to eat in San Pedro versus McDonald's, Burger Kings or Mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, But in the center of San Pedro, there's this restaurant called Trainees. And this guy is making amazing Italian food and it's like old-school Italian food and also some modern things uh, I've had I, I went I went there for, I've been there for lunch and dinner and then for brunch and like every single dish is like holy shit This guy's incredible mm-hmm. and we've become friends ever since and I and I just nobody expects to find a good restaurant in San Pedro and this restaurant is like impressive not mm-hmm. for San Pedro, but in in, mm-hmm. in in general, this is a phenomenal restaurant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was it trainees? Trainees. Trainees. Yeah. T R A N I apostrophe S. Yeah. Okay. If you had to choose your last meal, what would it be, and from where? If you were to go somewhere and get it. Oof. This is a tough one. This is a really difficult one. I'm the guy that look that stares at the ice cream selection for like five hours and does not cannot come to a conclusion <laughs> of what he wants and ice cream is one of my favorite things on the planet uh i want to i want to be cool and answer something very simple like a piece of you know sourdough vague with with a phenomenal rustic butter and maybe a pinch of salt that is delicious mm-hmm. um or maybe i want to say 
<laughs> a double whopper with cheese from Burger King, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm actually, me being a burger guy and like being known for burgers, that is, I think, my favorite burger. Is it? Your yeah. guilty pleasure. <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> double whopper with cheese from Burger King, it's incredible. <laughs> so I think with that or the burger, I'll be, I'll be. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, what is one thing on your bucket list that you still want to do? I want to be rich. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, man, this, this... And it doesn't have to be on, on the corner side. It can be yeah. anything. Um, so, I'm, I'm a very uh, spiritual guy. Uh, but to the other side of the spiritual. Like, I, I'm big on, like... UFOs and aliens and mm-hmm. life on other planets and space and travel and all that stuff. I if if it was possible, I would love to have Elon uh, send me on a SpaceX to just circle around the Earth to see the planet, mm-hmm. Mother Earth from outside. That uh, I mean, who wouldn't want that? I yeah. think you know, it's an it's 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 a really uh, <laughs> it's a. Uh, uh, oh, the word here uh, it will probably never happen in my life but if i could i would mm-hmm. i would die really happy right after that mm-hmm. yeah that'd be awesome for sure yeah hey, who knows elon may do it yeah or jeff yeah. bezos will oh yeah you probably you jeff know? is closer to the uh commercial space uh tourism yeah yeah so all right uh where can listeners go to find you online um learn more about you and any projects that you wanted to know about yeah, uh, Instagram I think is what the what the industry uses more now. Uh, my handle is at Andres Dangond, and good luck spelling that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll put in the show notes so they can click on that link. Yeah, and then my restaurants um, at the Cut HCB, which stands for Handcrafted Burgers, and of course what is coming somewhere between summers of 18 and 19 at Tacos by Dre's. And that's it. Perfect. Yeah. All right, Chef, thank you. Appreciate you being here today. Hey, man, it was fun. Thank you for inviting me. And that's a wrap for this week's podcast. Thank you for listening, my friends. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Culinaryschool.com. You can find the show notes to this week's podcast as well as the previous episode show notes. If you enjoyed the episode and got any value from it, I ask that you please go to iTunes to rate and subscribe to the podcast. And if you know of anyone who might find value in the podcast, please share it with them. My mission is to bring you a weekly guest from the food service world to share their story and insights with you. And until next time, I'm Jonathan Schroeder. This is Culinary School.